no, and yes. No, I do not dye my hair. No, I do not straighten my hair. And yes, you're right, it is nice to have someone in the pulpit with a bit more hair than Dave Todd. (laughs) Appearances can be deceptive. I will concede that to the untrained eye, my hair does look like it has has been dyed, but it's the sun. And I will concede to the untrained eye that my hair looks like it could have been straightened, but I do not even use a comb. Aren't you jealous? Um, I remember when I started work um, last year in high school, school, I'm a teaching assistant, and I went into a classroom, and I was, uh, a girl put her hand up and wanted some help from me, so the dutiful teaching assistant that I was went over, um, I helped her out, and she said to me, are you a year 10 mentor? Um, I said, no, I'm 23, and that'll be a detention. Um, she started crying, it was embarrassing for her. Um, You see, appearances can be deceptive. And the shocking thing is appearances can be deceptive when it comes to relating to God. You can look really, really good spiritually, but actually be nowhere when it comes to God. And you see, if we find to only have the appearance of relating to God rightly and not the substance, well, then we'll be found in trouble. It won't be the embarrassment of being mistaken for someone with overpreened hair and being a 14-year-old like me. No, it will be condemnation from God's King Jesus. And that's my first point tonight. Jesus condemns leafy, outward religion. Jesus condemns leafy, outward religion. Just look with me at verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went out to find if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. And at first it seems really strange and surprising, doesn't it? It seems that Jesus maybe is a bit tired, a bit grumpy, had an off day, and so he curses this poor defenceless fig tree. But that's not the point at all. And we've seen, as we've looked at Mark's Gospel this week, Jesus is the king of the universe. God's king, who is God with the skin on. And we see that he's not some tyrannical king who goes around cursing poor defenceless fig trees. No, in Mark 10 we saw he is patient and serving. And in Mark 2 we saw that he is compassionate and loving. So this incident here, it cannot mean that Jesus is on an off day, no. In fact, what we see here is a story where we see something that happens with a fig tree. And then Jesus goes to the temple and then back to the fig tree. And the incident with the fig tree helps us understand what goes on in the temple. And you'll see that the temple is just like the fig tree. In verse 11, Jesus has a look at the temple, and what does he see? He sees leaves, basically. It's leafy. It looks like it will be producing fruit. In the temple, they do all the right sacrifices. They do all the right things. They have all the systems in place. The priest knows exactly what they're doing. They've got money changes. People you can buy your doves off that you need to sacrifice for your sin. It looks great, but just like the fig tree, Jesus says there is no fruit being produced. Halfway down, verse 13, he said, When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves. And what Jesus says to the fig tree is true of the temple. The first reason why Jesus condemns leafy outward religion is because Jesus wants your whole life. Not just leaves, not an outward appearance, but your whole life. Jesus wants 
the inward reality of trust in him, shown in every area of our lives. Verse 17, And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The first part of what Jesus says here is a quote from Isaiah. And Isaiah's quoted loads of times in Mark's Gospel, so I'm sure if you want to understand Mark better, you need to understand Isaiah better. And in the bit in Isaiah, if you look there, um, God is showing how the nations, people who aren't Jews, who aren't part of the nation of Israel, can actually become part of God's people. And in that bit, he says, anyone who would bind themselves to the Lord, serve the Lord, love the Lord, and worship the Lord, well, they'd be in, they'd be one of God's people. That was what the Lord wanted from non-Jews. Indeed, that was what the Lord wanted from Israel as well. He wanted them to bind themselves, serve, love, and worship him with all of their lives. Yet Israel, the nation of Israel, mechanically went through the motions of temple sacrifice without worshipping, serving, and loving that Lord of the temple in all of their lives. Worship for them, if you like, was a temporary temple experience rather than a whole life experience. Well, why don't we turn up Jeremiah and see a little bit more detail of what these people were like. Jeremiah chapter 7, um, page um, 764. Um, and as you're turning there, um, I'm going to relay a little story which hopefully help us understand what's going on in Jeremiah. Um, I work um, in a high school, I've just said that, and I work in a section of the learning support department which is full of all women. Um, there's 15 of us, um, 14 of them women, and just little old me. And um, they were kind of middle-aged, um, very northern, kind of a little bit gobby women. Um, they're great. I do absolutely love them. And I think they tried to make me feel at home. So they told me they were really into football. And, you know, I'm into football, so they thought, oh, they'd try and relate to me. I thought it was brilliant. And I remember one night, I'd watched an England match. Um, it was an England friendly. And it was David Beckham's comeback match. Um, fantastic. You know, he'd come from the international wilderness back into the team. I wish he was still in the international wilderness personally. But anyway, I got to work the next day and I thought, great, um, I get to talk about football for once rather than um, eyelash tinting and the works. <laughs> and so I said to my friend, um, did you watch the game? And she said to me, well, let me relay the conversation how it went. I said, what did you think of the game? She said, oh, that David Beckham is so gorgeous. <laughs> I thought I'd play one. Um, yeah, he did have a good game, I said. I said, it's his face. It's his fa- he's just so beautiful, it's his face. I was like, oh yeah, that pass he did for Crouch's second goal was excellent. I said, no, no, it's, it's not his legs, it's his face, it's his face. I tried to kind of change the subject. I thought John Terry had another solid game at the back. And then she said, even when he took his top off at the end, it's not his body, it's his face. His face is just so lovely. At which point I kind of asked the question, what did you think of the relative merits of a Lampard-Gerrard midfield? <laughs> Knowing there'd be no response. And by this time, a whole office of 14 women we're enjoying David Beckham's face. Now, you see, there is far, far, far more to an England international than David Beckham's lovely face. And there is far more to being a faithful member of God's people than temple sacrifice. Just look with me at verse 4 of Jeremiah chapter 7. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave to your forefathers forever 
and ever. The people in Jeremiah's day, they loved the temple. This is the temple. It's like David Beckham said, oh, the temple, the temple, the temple. They loved it. But in the rest of their lives, they dealt unjustly with one another. They oppressed outsiders, orphans and widows. They killed the innocent and followed other gods. On the outside, they appeared to have everything just right. They did all the temple stuff just right. And in verse 10, they shockingly say, we are safe. But Lord says, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? The problem Jesus unmasks here, and with this quote, is not one of stealing materially. That was not what was going on in Mark 11 either. Rather, the people stole from God by not serving, loving, and worshipping him with all their lives. They stole him the praise that was rightfully his. Jesus wants your whole life. Lip service on a Sunday will not do. Because, but he says, but I have been watching, declares the Lord. God sees everything. There is far more to faith in God than doing the odd sacrifice, and there is far more to trust in Jesus than coming to church on a Sunday. Christianity is never less than coming to church, doing communion, reading your Bible, praying, but it is always, to steal a Jason Clark phrase, always more. Always. Jesus wants our whole life. So while we must come to church, we must serve one another, we must pray, we must read our Bibles, Jesus wants us to think about, well, what will trusting me mean in the whole of my life? What will it mean Monday morning at school? What will it mean bringing up a small child? What will it mean relating to my work colleagues? What will it mean about working hard? Jesus wants our whole life. You see, if we just turn up to church and put our trust in that for safety, well, then we're in trouble. Because Jesus condemns leafy, outward religion. And so we must be careful not to put our trust in a good church, but in a good God. We can say, well, I go to Christ Church forward. I go to Christ Church forward. I go to, yes, Christ Church forward. But the shock of these words of Jesus in Mark 11, the shock of God's words to the people in Jeremiah's time, and the shock of these words for us, is that it is possible to be part of a Bible-believing church, but yet not trust in the God of the Bible. So the question is, what am I trusting in? What are you trusting in? Outward things, your attendance here on a Sunday? Or are you trusting in a good God and him alone? Jesus condemns our right religion because he wants all of us, not just a bit of time on a Sunday, not even a bit of time in a small group as well, he wants our whole lives. And he also wants us to understand that the temple is destroyed. Our religion is condemned because the temple is destroyed. Look with me, um, turn back to Mark's Gospel, if you will, page 1016. And look with me at Mark 11 and verse 14. Then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. May no one ever eat fruit from you. Jesus is condemning the temple. No longer will the temple be a place where you can access God. No longer. The disciples heard him say it. It's reinforcing the point. The temple is on its way out. So then on reaching Jerusalem, well, Jesus enters the temple area and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. Not because that was a wrong thing to do. No, that was the right thing to do. He overturns the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Again, good and right things to do. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple's courts because 
the sacrificial system in the temple is out. It's going to be destroyed. No one will access God through the temple anymore. Outward temple worship is out. It will be withered by Jesus. That's why he stops the trade of animals for sacrifice. Jesus is putting an end to the sacrificial system because he will become the ultimate sacrifice. There will be no more need for doves, no more need for money changes, no more need for merchandise because Jesus' death, one sacrifice, will deal with it all. The temple will be destroyed and all we'll be left with is Jesus. And so it is foolish to keep trusting in outward things because Jesus has done away with them. Israel could no longer access God by sacrifice and ritual, and neither can we. Coming to church, taking communion are great and right things to do, but if we trust in them, well, we put all our eggs in the wrong basket. We need to put all our eggs in a Jesus-shaped basket. He is how we are saved. And I think Peter seems to get the implication of this, and I think he says with panic in verse 21, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you have cursed is withered. He seems to understand The temple is out as a way of accessing God. There's no way forgiveness left, seemingly. How will anyone be forgiven? I think that's the thought in Peter's mind. Well, Jesus reassures Peter and us, and indeed a whole world that loves religion. Jesus, secondly, calls us to faith in the God of forgiveness. Jesus calls us to faith in the God of forgiveness. Verse 22. Have faith in God, Jesus says. Instead of trusting in outward religion in the temple, trust God. And Jesus carries on and says, I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And on first reading, I'm really confused because I get the first bit. Yes, we must trust God and not in outward stuff. But the next bit seems a bit, well, okay, you can ask for whatever you want now. Brilliant. However big, whatever you want, you'll get it. Whatever you ask for. And my eyes light up at this point. I think, brilliant, it's now my chance to pray for a widescreen TV, iPod, new laptop, car, probably a Ferrari, as I can have whatever I ask for. And one of these little pendulum things that swings and knocks the balls back. I've always been fascinated by one, I've never been able to get one. But I'm sure these verses, they can't mean that, can they? And as we saw on Housebuy in Mark 10... James and John go to Jesus and say, Jesus, give us whatever we ask. And James and John ask for greatness. They make a huge mistake. They want greatness and status. They get it wrong, and we must not make the same mistake here with these verses. When Jesus says he'll give us whatever we ask, the question we must be asking ourselves is, what do we need? If outward religion is condemned, if our temptation to trust, it's our temptation to trust religion all the time, isn't it? And if We're supposed to live our whole lives loving, serving and worshipping God and yet we don't, do we? Not really. And if the temple is destroyed, there seems like there's no way to be forgiven. Well, what's the big thing we need? What is the big mountain that needs to be moved? It's forgiveness, isn't it? Surely, that's what we should ask for. Verse 25. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father may forgive you your sins. Jesus calls us to faith in a God of forgiveness. So ask what you need. I think these verses are quite confusing, but I think the point of the mountain is to show us the scale of what we're asking for. It is impossible 
for a mountain to be moved into a sea, surely. And it is the same with our sin. Our sin is so massive, isn't it? I know mine is. How can my sin be dealt with? It, it seems so huge. How can it be dealt with when I can't earn forgiveness by turning up to church on a Sunday? Jesus replaces the temple and makes a sacrifice for sin that deals with it for all time. And do you see what great assurance there is in that? What great security? I don't have to trust in myself and what I do, but in Jesus, God's King, who is always reliable. So we must ask for what we need. And I hope we realise again what a massive thing it is for our sin to be dealt with. It costs far more than a dove, than some merchandise in a temple. It costs far more than church attendance on a Sunday even. Forgiveness costs the king of the universe his life. So put your faith in him and no one else and nothing else. Jesus calls us to faith in a God of forgiveness, so ask for what you need. And secondly and finally, respond with what you received. Verse 25, And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father may forgive you your sins. We will know that our faith isn't merely outwards, merely leafy religion, when the truth of it impacts our lives. The impact of believing in a God of forgiveness who deals with all my sin for all time, past and future. What's the implication for my, the way I live? What's my response? Forgive others. Respond with what you've received. And when I think about how much I've been forgiven, all my sin, past and future, in Jesus, on the cross, how massive a thing that is that God would forgive me my mountain of sin. So how can I possibly refuse to forgive others? You see, shockingly, if we don't forgive others, then it is a sure sign that our our religion is leafy and outward. And that is condemned by Jesus, and it will never deal with our sin. We will remain condemned if our faith doesn't impact our whole lives. So we are to live, to serve, to worship, and love him, love Jesus with all of our lives. These verses should lead us to repent of our false religion and in all its many forms, I know there's much in me, and believe in the God of forgiveness who forgave me so much. Forgiveness found in one place only, in Jesus. Let's pray.